So the Lord saved Israel that day. Now as we look at verses 1 through to 23, we ask, who is the hero in this portion of the word of God? Who is the chapter focusing on? And of course, everyone will say Jonathan. Jonathan is the man of faith, the man of God, and he comes to the fore. And there's a lot of truth in that. But I don't think he's the real hero of the story. I think the one who is the glorious one in this portion is the Lord. It's always the Lord, isn't it, that gets the glory. That in his presence no flesh should glory, saith the Lord. Which is why we have read verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Jonathan was the instrument, but it wasn't a case of, you know, Jonathan saved the people and the Lord helped him. It was a case of the Lord saved the people and he used Jonathan. That's the real story. The story is not just to give us a good example, Jonathan, to follow, and it's not just giving us a bad example that we should not follow and avoid Saul. That's not what this portion of the Word of God is about. It's not to give us moral lessons, how we should live and behave. Sometimes the chapter has been preached that way and can be done so that way. But I don't think the Holy Spirit gives us the Bible to tell us, you be like a Jonathan and don't be like a Saul. That's not what the Bible's about. Moralistic, merely. You know, be a Jonathan, have faith, go forward, do the battle, win the victory, overcome the enemies. That's not what these heroes of faith are about. They're picturing Christ. They're showing the real champion, the real deliverer, the real saviour. They're conveying to us historic, redemptive stories. That set forth Christ. Not just moralistic application, which does, as I say, have a place, but I think that the main purpose always of the Holy Spirit is to set forth before us the redemptive work that is needful through a Savior. And so we're always going to Christ, aren't we? We're always finding Christ. This chapter and all the word of God teaches us about God's salvation it's teaching us about his grace it's teaching about the need of his grace and his saving work among us it's teaching us about his ways with mankind so the spirit's purpose is always to show us Christ and you can't live the Christian life you know by just seeing Jonathan and you can't live the Christian life by just seeing Saul with all his failures. No, you live the Christian life by seeing Christ, by looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith in all its fullness and perfection. It's looking on to Jesus. Hebrews has already taught us that, hasn't it? We had all these great examples of faith, Hebrews chapter 11, but Paul never once said, look on to them. No, he says, looking on to Jesus, 
And that's what we want to do. We're not looking on to Jonathan here tonight. We're looking on to Jesus. And Jonathan is setting him forth as a picture of that. I've already drawn attention to the first verse last week. The significance of this expression. It came to pass upon a day. This chapter is about a day. It's all around this day that we are referred to at the start. It's the day that something powerful took place. It's the day when things changed. It's the day when a lot happened. Upon a day. And at the close of our text, you will notice in verse 23, So the Lord saved Israel that day. Do you see how it's unfolding it? Upon a day. And then the story unfolds. And then at the end it says, The Lord saved Israel that day. So we're still talking about this day. That day. Upon a day. In a sense, the story is not about Jonathan. The story is not about Saul. The story is about that day. The Lord saved Israel that day. The day of salvation. The day of victory. It's that day that we are thinking about tonight. And the first thing is that this day starts as a day of darkness. A day of the power of darkness. A day of the forces of hell. A day of the strength and the power and the might and the incredible number of the wicked. It's the day of the prince of the power of the air, the Philistines. There's a word here that stands out quite a bit in this chapter. It's the word garrison. There's a fort. There is a citadel of Satan. There is the Philistine base. The head of the advance to take over the land of promise. And what are they called? The uncircumcised. They picture the world, they picture the flesh, they picture all that's under the power of darkness and under Satan. They are encroaching into the land of Israel. And they're against the Lord and against his anointed. It's the same old story down through history. The seed of Satan and the seed of the woman. This warfare, this conflict. Light and darkness. Satan, God. Here we have it again. That This story in minuscule again in this chapter. The garrison of the Philistines. Now the Philistines have come right up to the gates. Right up to the headquarters of Israel. And the gates of hell are arrayed against the church. Thousands and thousands of them. Controlled by the spirit of Antichrist. Under the spirit of delusion. Blinded by the God of this world. They represent what we need safe from. We need safe from darkness. We need safe from the seed of the serpent. We need safe from the prince of the power of the earth. We need safe from all that is opposed to God and his Christ. We need saved from this enemy. And salvation is all about that. Being delivered from the power of darkness being translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's dear Son, into the kingdom of light. We need saved from the darkness, from the enemy, from Satan, from hell, 
and from the forces of hell and the spread of deception and delusion that engulfs the whole world and causes the whole world to lie in wickedness. And we're just lying there in wickedness, like everybody else. We have to be saved. We have to be delivered from it. So it's just the same old story, isn't it? In minuscule, in the history of redemption being set forth again. That's what the Old Testament is always doing. It's always setting forth the story of redemption in historic form along the different periods of time and history. That's what the Old Testament is all about. So it's not a book about moral lessons. Here's an example for us to live. Check yourself. Let's go and be men of faith and, you know, kill Goliath and all of that. No, we don't kill Goliath. It's David who kills Goliath. It's a special man who kills Goliath. It's a special man who saves. It's a special man who delivers. All the time, it's always a man raised up. And that man, in the deliverance, is always picturing the one who ultimately brings in the great salvation, the Son of David, Jesus Christ. So that's what the Old Testament is about. It's redemptive history. So that's the first thing. A day of darkness, a day of the power of hell. The second thing is, it's also, if you think about the church now, and those who ought to know better, the people of God, and the professing people of God, and those who belong to the professing body of Christ, it's a day of departure. It's a day of apostasy. It's a day of doubt and fear and strain away. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. We're the strange. We're the wonders. So if you want to know where we are in the story, we're not Jonathan. We're the other ones who are departed, who have gone and hid, who need saved and who need a deliverer, who need someone who come along and, and to bring the victory. The people of God here are in a very sorry state in this chapter. There's only one man who stands out different, him and his obedient armor bearer. That's all there is. So the professing people of God, let me tell you one of the things they've done. They've left and joined the Philistines for a start. A whole lot of them are amongst the Philistines up there in the garrison. They've so turned their back, they've so strayed, they've so wandered, that they've wandered right into the camp of the enemy itself. That's how far they've strayed. That's how far they've got away from God. And then there are others, they have went and found all the caves and all the holes and all the dark places around about and they've run into them and they're burying their heads in there and they're hiding in there in the caves. You remember how the Philistines mocked them? Jonathan and whenever he was coming up. Oh, here they come. Here's a couple more of Israelites out of the holes. The caves are dark places. The caves are like the kind of places where you bury people, where the graves are. The holes of the earth. Makes you think of death and graves. God's people are like those who are dead. They're like those who are in the grave. They're like those who are in the darkness. They're not going to save themselves. They're not going to bring deliverance. How are they going to find a saviour? We can't save ourselves. We've went and joined the enemy. We've went and run into the holes and caves of the earth. We're in the darkness. We're dead in our sin. How are we going to save ourselves? We can't. We need someone to deliver us. We need someone who's mighty. We need someone who, who is the true author and finisher of faith. We need a redeemer. 
And others, we read of them that they went into other parts of Israel, into Ephraim. We think even that some have crossed over into the Jordan and even gone outside the land of promise. That's how far they've got away from God. They're not going to be saved by their works. They're not going to overcome their enemy by their own might. None of them can sort of pick themselves up by the shoelaces and say, I'll be a Jonathan and I'll save myself and I'll bring deliverance to myself. Not one of them. And that's us. We can't save ourselves. We need someone. We need a deliverer. We need one that the Father raises up. And so that's really what we're being shown here. A day of darkness, a day of departure and strain. And then thirdly, it's a day of exposure. Because in verses 2 and 3 here, we have someone who we thought would have saved us. Saul, he's the Lord's anointed. He is the one who is chosen by the people. And the people's king here, and he's just tarrying under the pomegranate tree. And he's got around him priests that God has rejected. Even Ichabod, and there's no need to bring in the name Ichabod, but the Holy Spirit brings it in here as if to say, this is what is identified with Saul. The glorious departed. God isn't hearing him. God isn't hearing his prayers. These priests, they're all rejected. And this is the defense of Israel. This is what the people are looking to, to save them. This king who is powerless and weak, seen here just tarrying. And all the forces of hell are arrayed against him. He's not doing a thing. Nothing. Because there's nothing he can do. He's powerless. The reason why this is here is, God is showing to us, remember, you rejected me as king. You says we want our king. We want a king like the nations. And they forgot that God was our king who delivered them and saved them. And now God's reminded, here's your king. This is the king that you wanted. The people refused to obey Samuel, you remember. And they said, no, we will have a king over us. So that he may be able to judge among us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Well, here he is. Is he going out and fighting their battles? No. He's idle. He's powerless. He hasn't a plan. He hasn't a clue what to do. This is your king. This is who you chose instead of me. When I was your king, and I delivered you, and I was your saviour. And so God kind of stands back here. I want you to have a good look at this. Before I save you. Before I rise up again as your king, and be the Lord who brings you a day of salvation. So it's a day of exposure of that which had been chosen instead of God. And there's so many people, they don't want God. They don't want the Savior. They don't want him to be king of their lives. They want something else or someone else. And when it comes to a day of darkness and a day whenever the Lord is needed, that something else or that someone else, whatever it is, will be utterly useless, utterly powerless. And so the king of Israel, Saul, is useless and he can't even save himself let alone save the people 
So the pathetic state then of, of Saul is, is pictured to us in the camera deliberately before it goes back again to show us the true saviour and the true deliverer that God has raised up by his mighty power. And so it's a very bleak picture, this exposure of, of the king that they had trusted in. Don't put your trust in the arm of flesh. Don't put your trust in human ordinances and human institutions. Brethren and sisters, our trust has to be in the Lord. And in the deliverer that he has given to us, the true king, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. So here's this bleak picture. Day of darkness, a day of departure, a day of the exposure of their last hope, Saul. But now the camera changes. And the day begins to change. And the day of darkness becomes a day of salvation. The Lord saved Israel that day. The Lord broke into the whole situation. And that's what we have to emphasize. Before we describe how the Lord did it and through whom he did it, we have to first stress it was the Lord that did it. The Lord saved Israel. It was Almighty God. He saved them from the Philistine invasion. It was God that drove them back. It was God that utterly destroyed them so that they fled away back into the coastal regions. It was the Lord that did it. And that has to be emphasized because that's the story. It's not, as it were, a story about the multitude and the many and all the skill of Saul. It's despite all of that, the Lord intervened. And brethren and sisters, our only hope of salvation, the salvation of our soul, the salvation that brings us out of the darkness into the light everlasting of the new heavens and the new earth, the only hope for our soul is God and his salvation and his grace and his divine intervention. This, this is what the Bible teaches time and time again. This is what all these stories are about. It's God. And if we go on a, a local scale ourselves here in this dark place in Ulster in the Western Europe and how bleak things look, the only hope is the Lord coming. The only hope is an intervention by the Almighty. The church isn't going to do it. The church isn't going to accomplish it. We're the ones who are departing, apostatizing, running away and hiding in the dark places and in the caves and going over to the enemy. That's what the church is doing. The only answer is if God comes, if the Redeemer comes and intervenes mightily, in the situation. And often he does. Because when the enemy comes in like a flood. That's what the Philistines have. Here they're flooding up the valley. In great multitudes. When the enemy comes in like a flood. The spirit of the Lord lifts up a standard. He's doing it here. He often does do that. It may be that he may do that in our day. It's nothing to the Lord. Didn't Jonathan say that? It's nothing to the Lord. To save by many. Or by few. And that's what we are. We're just a few. That's all. We're two or three are gathered in my name. A few. But it's nothing to the Lord to save by a few. So it's a day of salvation that was wrought by 
Almighty God. So it's not the story about the faith of Jonathan, but it's the story of the power of God, the overriding message of the Bible, salvation is of the Lord. They will call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. That's the whole message of the Bible. It's the Lord that saves. It's the Lord that delivers. And thus emphasized right here, verse 6, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Verse 9, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand. Verse 12 at the end, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. Do you see how Jonathan says it? He doesn't say, oh, I'm going to get this great deliverance. It's going to be my hand. No, it's the Lord. He recognizes it's the Lord. He knows he's just a simple, humble instrument. It's the Lord that does it. And that has to be the very basic tenant of the Christian church. The Lord saves. Not angels, not saints, not rituals, not religion. The Lord alone saves this great salvation. Even that expression occurs here in verse 45. I brought this great salvation. Where do you think Paul got this? How shall we escape that we neglect so great salvation? Where is he getting that from? Well, he's getting it from the Old Testament. Where that expression occurs on a number of occasions. The great salvation. When God saves, it's a great salvation. And that's why sinners who neglect God and who turn their back to God and who reject Jesus Christ, oh, the folly of it, because they are neglecting a great salvation. Choosing Saul or going to the Philistines or going away down into their wee hidey holes or whatever else they choose and turning their back to this great thing of a great salvation. That's in Jesus Christ. So it's a day of salvation. But let's progress on a little more. It's also a day of strength made perfect in weakness. You see, this is the thing about God's salvation, and it's all through the Bible, that whenever God saves, he doesn't raise up a big army of millions and millions and overcomes the enemies. He doesn't outnumber them, as it were. Whenever God saves, he saves it. In weakness. Out of weakness. He makes the enemy to fly. In a way of humiliation. In a way nearly of shame. I mean, what is there here? There's just one man, Jonathan, and his young armor bearer, and he's just a youth. These two, this is weakness. This is folly. Goliath and the Philistines, they laugh at this. There's no strength in this. What did Paul say whenever he wrote about this? He says, out of weakness we're made strong. Turn to flight the armies of the aliens. That's how God saves. Out of weakness. That's how he humiliates and shames the devil. Out of weakness, he says. He doesn't bring to bear all his omnipotence that created the world Upon the kingdom of darkness. No. He brings the cross. He brings the agony of Jesus Christ. Out of weakness. 
He turns to flight the armies of the alien. He uses the weak instruments of this world. He uses the smallest number. Even a mere man. He uses the despised and the powerless. Jonathan and his armor bearer have gone up. Nobody even misses it. They're they're that insignificant. They're not even missed in the camp. They've gone off on their own. Weakness. And yet through this weakness, through this baseness, through this humiliation of Israel reduced to two men going forward, in this humiliation, God works the victory. That's how God saves. This is redemptive history here being taught to us. This is how I'm going to save you. Out of weakness, turn to flight all the armies of hell. That's how God works. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things and things which are despised hath God chosen. And you know Jesus of Nazareth? Everybody looked at him. He's a foolish thing. He's a base thing. He's a despised thing. But he's God's man. And this man is going to conquer death and hell. And he's going to conquer it on the cross. His weapon is going to be the timber of the tree. As he dies on the cross. And brings in the great salvation. That's how God saves. It's amazing. So that nobody glories. And God gets the glory. And the glory of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. See the Philistines there mock Jonathan. Oh, here's these wee people coming out of the, the hidey holes. Come on up here, we'll show you a thing or two. Not one bit worried about them. They laugh at them, they mock, at, mock them. They're not frightened by them. And Jonathan, he had to climb over one rock, go over another rock. He's on his hands and his feet and his knees practically. Going down, going across the valley, going up the other cliff. Hands and knees and feet. The hands and feet are mentioned in the text. His hands and his feet. Here's a man who uses his hands and his feet. He's not killing anybody. He's just climbing rough surface. Tearing his hands and his feet on the rock and on the cliffs. As he goes up and descends. Tearing himself. Cutting himself. One of the names. Sinna means thorny. Thorny. They're thorny bushes. And he's working his way through the thorny bushes. And he's being torn by thorns as he goes down. And then the other one means shiny. The sense probably is it's slippy. There's water coming down. It's shiny. But you know the way water is in stone and a bit of algae? It's slippery. It's slimy. And you're slipping. And you're struggling. That's how he overcomes the enemy. By going down. Down into the valley. And coming up again. Up again, through the thorns. That's Christ. He went down, down, down into the humiliation of death. He went down into the cave. You see, as they see these two boys coming up, the Philistines said, oh, here they're coming out of the caves. Here they're coming out of the holes. Here they're coming out of the graves where they've been hiding away. And that's what it was with Jesus. He went down into the cave. He went down into the tomb. He went down into Hades. And he came up again. 
the conqueror, the deliverer, the victor. It's a redemptive picture here of what we have in our Savior Jesus Christ and how he saves us, how he delivers us. This great salvation wrought by the humble Jesus of Nazareth. And so Calvary's here, and the crown of thorns is here, and the pierced hands and feet are here, and the humiliation of a man on his hands and knees descending and going up is all here. That's our deliverer. That's our saviour. That's our Jonathan. There's not we more or less. It's here, go you and be Jonathan. The lesson is, where's our Jonathan? Where will we find our Jonathan to save us? And we find him in Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Jesus. So he was crucified in weakness, the Bible says. Yet he liveth by the power of God. Weak yet mighty. Weak yet the Savior. Weak yet the Deliverer. And you remember how weak he was? You remember he went into Gethsemane? The blood dropping from his pores? He could hardly carry the weight? And an angel has to come and strengthen his physical frame and to hold him up and just to strengthen him as he recovers from that, that blood loss and the sweat? Weakness. And he can't carry his cross. He had to get somebody else to carry his cross. Weakness. And there he is in all the shame of Calvary. In the weakness. And yet it's the power of God to salvation. That's how Christ saves. Out of weakness. Made strong. It was a day of wonderful faith and activity of obedience. God wrought the salvation, but you'll notice that he wrought it by the hand of a man who had faith and obedience. We have to look at that part because this Jonathan has, has all of that. He has faith. He's amazing. He's a humble man. He wouldn't even tell his father. Now, he probably didn't tell his father because he knew his father would stop him. But whatever, he's not talking about it. He's humble. He's just going out and doing it. Nobody even misses him. So there's something of humility here. There's something of humility in not climbing up rocks and crags and doing all of that. Something of humility. And he's obeying God. And he's full of zeal. He says, come, let's go. What zeal? What earnestness? He doesn't think about the power of the enemy or the number of the enemy. He sets his face like a flint. We're going. And he's going because he has faith in God. The Lord can deliver us. He knows the Bible, you see. One will chase a thousand and all of this, all the promises of God. He knows that God has promised to defeat the Philistines and to drive them out. He knows that's been promised because that was the purpose Saul was raised up for, to do that. But he's failed to do that. But he knows it's God's will to do that. He, he's obeying God. He has trust in God. He has commitment, body and soul. And I could say to you now, do you have commitment, body, and soul? Do I have commitment, body, and soul? But that's not the lesson here. The lesson is we need a Savior who's committed body and soul, who has faith, who's the very author of faith, the very finisher of faith, who is perfect in faith through all his life, a righteous life, a sinless life, a spotless life, a holy life, a life that doesn't 
stall or turn back or in any way offend God. And that life is the life of Jesus Christ. He's the man of faith. He's the man of obedience. He's the man God's law has written in his heart. He's the man who touches his face as a flint to drive out the oppressor of our soul. He's the man who doesn't turn back. He's a picture of Christ, this, this Jonathan here. And he goes in humility and he, he, he's obedient, totally and utterly obedient. Jonathan is like that. He's, he's a, you know, Jonathan's not praying. You know, some people say, you know, Saul's doing the praying. He's got the ephod. He's doing all the praying. And here's, here's a man who's not even praying. He's just going out and doing. Well, brethren and sisters, there are things you don't have to pray about. You just have to obey God. I mean, you, you don't pray about, well, I go to church today. You just have to obey God. You don't pray about, well, you know, should I commit adultery with this woman or, or should I not? Do you have to pray about that? No, you don't have to pray about a thing like that. You just obey God. Can I take this? Can I steal this? Can I do this? No, you don't have to ask God about it at all. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not do wrong. Just, just obey. Saul, so he, he's not obeying. He's tiring. He's delaying. He's disobeying. He's covering it by prayer, of course. But here's a man who doesn't have to do the praying. He just goes out and obeys God. And that was our Christ. Every day. Yes, he worshipped his father and he had communion and fellowship with his father. But his whole life in the main was just a life of perfect obedience and perfect faith and perfect trust. You know, the people in the boat, they're, they're fighting with the wind, they're fighting with the storm, they're struggling, they're crying, oh Lord, help us, save us. And Jesus, he's just sleeping, that's all. Because he's perfectly trusting his father. He says, Father, I know you hear me. I know you always hear me. We just had to ask it once, usually. That was it. Not big long prayers going on and on and on and on. No, he just has perfect communion with God and perfectly obeys his Father and does the will of his Father. He just believes and trusts. Very much that's Jonathan. And our lamb was a lamb who was spotless, a lamb who was sinless. And the lamb who gave himself a sacrifice for us. And he saved us. You remember that Jonathan is identified with the curse and death. Remember how Saul put an oath. He says, cursed is anybody who eats die. And you remember Jonathan got the honey. And he had. He's under the curse. He's identified with the curse. Yet perfect obedience. Perfect glory. Perfect faith. And yet he's under the curse. He's picturing Christ. This is what it's all about. He had a curse for us. It was also a death change. This is where we get to ourselves. This is where we are in the story now. Jonathan is not us. Jonathan is Christ. But you see when the people watch Jonathan? In the camp of Saul, they're watching Jonathan. What's happening over there? There's a great flight. The Philistines are being scattered. They're killing each other. There's something happening. There's a great trembling. The watchmen are watching it. And Saul's told about it. And Jonathan's salvation works a great change in Israel. Because it says there in verse 19, Saul said unto the priest, withdraw thine hand. He's still praying, still seeking God. But now he realizes, time to stop. Take away your hand. Get away this ephod. No more of the urban thumbing. 
withdraw your hand. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled. You see how Saul has changed now? He's not tying under the tree anymore. He has watched the deliverer. He has watched the Jonathan. He has watched the saviour. He has watched the enemies being routed. He's watched the triumph on the victory. And there's a change. Up he gets. And he goes out. And he assembles. And not only does he assemble. It says there. The people that were with him. Assemble themselves. That's one of the first things Christians do. When they're saved. That's one of the first things people of God do. When the Lord saves them. When they see the saviour. When they see the victory of the cross. When they see the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And what it has done. What's the first thing they do? They assemble. On the Lord's day. That's what they do. And now, after watching Jonathan, they assembled. Beginning to obey. A change. A transformation that has taken place through Jonathan's victory. And then, something else. Verse 21. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time, which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan. Do you see these traitors? These ones who went into the camp of the Philistines and joined with them? Whenever they saw what Jonathan did, whenever they saw that God was working salvation in Jonathan, they turned. They turned. They repented. They changed. They were transformed. And they joined the battle with Jonathan. They went on to Jonathan's side. They're back again with the Lord through the triumph of Jonathan. That's where we are in the story. This is us. You know, just getting on with the enemy. Loving the world. Lost in the world. In the sin. But then we see the Savior. And we see the victory of the cross. And through grace we are changed. And we turn. We turn against the world. And we turn against the flesh. And we turn against Satan. And we join. Jonathan. And we align with our Christ. We choose him and we align with him. And so that we are here in the change, you see. And as well as that, verse 22, Likewise, all the men of Israel which had hid themselves, whenever they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. Do you see them now coming out? They've been in their holes and in their caves. But someone has come with a message. There's a saviour. There's a deliverer. Who's scattered the enemy. And who's brought light again to Israel. And they come out of their caves. And that's us. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We were in the cave of night and darkness. And then the gospel message came. There's a deliverer. There's a Jonathan. Who in his humiliation has wrought for us a victory. And we come out. We come out into the light and we follow him. Changed by Jonathan. Changed by the victory of the cross. So this this is what this story is about. We always have to find Christ in the story. And find our true place in the story. And our true place is we are never the hero. The hero is always Christ. The saviour. Who saves us and who brings us out of darkness into the marvellous light of his grace. 
And so it's his cross work that brings us from afar. All those ones who went afar, way over the Jordan even, in time even they came back through Jonathan's victory. And may we all come back to the Lord, to our Christ. And may sinners fly to him too, who is the only Redeemer.